This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I'm assuming you were a child at some point. Yes. Excellent. No, that's a good <laughs> good initial question. I'm glad we're starting off with confidence. I thought that just just needed a yes. I thought that was all that that question needed. I mean, you, you did you did admirable there. <laughs> did you ever play this thing where you pretend you're something? Like maybe you were, I don't know, like a firefighter or an operator. Oh yeah. I mean, with other people too. I, I remember playing like probably some kind of version of not banks and like uh like robbers and and like police or something like that but some version of that where we like chased each other around like the woods as a kid i remember that i also remember just playing make-believe on my own i loved watching baseball games when i was a kid and i would just sit there and pretend like while i was watching the game that i was in it and i hit the home runs no that's one time i opened up a restaurant and i had my my mother come to my restaurant we only served coffee cake because that's what I could get the Drake's coffee cakes from the it was in the one of the lower cabinets and that's what I served and then she paid with fake money to me so I learned about how to be a restaurateur I never became a restaurateur mm-hmm. yeah I've played that recently with with our nieces they like to deliver they really just like to say service really wrong and they think that's funny so they just will funny. like they have a restaurant primarily based around saying service so it's kind of like, like a Boston main. restaurant. Yeah, just that one word though. Like they don't do the full accent. So, well, why do you ask? I mean, role playing is there something there? So today we're going to be talking about role play and simulations, and so I thought it'd be kind of neat to kind of tap into the inner inner child. Yeah, there's something fun about role playing and and being in experiences that allow you to just be present in that moment, but also kind of enact something else. Maybe I don't know. I I know that I'm never going to be a surgeon, right? But man, that operation game, I was terrible at it. Um, but I enjoyed it, although my anxiety would go quite up. I think by playing operation, I realized that this was not for me. Yeah, I'm, I can say just for myself, I'm glad you're not operating on me. <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe this is a good time to bring in our guest. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, Jane Lowe. Welcome. Hey, guys. Jane Lowe, did you ever play the the role play game or did you ever pretend you were something else when you were a child or even an adult? Yeah, of course. I remember when I was a kid, my sister and I used to play, you know, like going to the supermarket or something. But somehow she always ended up being the clerk because I think she didn't trust that I would like ring up the things correctly. Oh, so. so you were just the customer? Yeah, basically I always had to be the customer. It's interesting how that switches because... I would not want to be the clerk as an adult. I would want to just be the customer. Exactly. But it sort of worked out. So I'm an expert shopper now. Nice. So aside from your incredible shopping skills, can you tell us about your background in education? 
Yeah, definitely. I got into education first as a teacher, actually. So I used to teach high school government and economics in a school in Austin, Texas. And that's sort of where I first got interested in how to get kids engaged and interested in learning about politics and government. Um, I was just sort of appalled by the lack of understanding my students had about the system. But I know that they really enjoyed games and obviously they like debates and things like that. And so when I went to graduate school, I started doing research and learning more about the different kinds of ways to engage students in learning about various things. And so that's of got me into researching civic education and thinking about role play and simulations. I taught government too in high school for a while. What what were your big like what are the things you remember most about teaching government? Honestly, the things I remember the most are it was super boring. <laughs> like even <laughs> oh, unfortunately no. for my students at the time, I, I'm pretty sure it was terribly boring for me as a teacher. And I'm sure it was for them as a student. But at the same time, I mean, I definitely remember, you know, when we did the legislative simulations, right? When we did debates in the classroom. I mean, those are the things that I remember. And I'm sure those are the things that my students would remember besides the fact that hopefully I wasn't actually a boring teacher, but that's <laughs> sort of my recollection. I am sure you were not. Uh, that just I just had a flashback to one year I had like several theater students in my class. And so when we were learning about the legislative process, we did a play of how bill becomes a law. And like one of the oh. students was was the bill. And so Amazing. she and yeah, it was pretty good. And she was going around the room like this ballerina being pushed from place to place. And it was, <laughs> it was like really good. My students were cool. <laughs> I think uh, you can probably do a little play about puberty with a bill becoming a law because that's kind of like, you know, when you're growing into, you know. Except for sometimes you're killed. Oh, yeah, I think yeah, we yeah. went to a dark place here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, yeah, so, but I think, <laughs> no, but I think part of, you know, I, I think about this, you know, I joke about being a boring teacher. I'm, I'm sure I wasn't a boring teacher, but there are lots of things that I, after going through grad school and have done research, really wish I knew as a teacher. Right. So I think about if I am going to go back to teaching high school government now, my class would be so much better than how it was when I first taught it before learning about all this research and all of these various things. So Jane, you went to the University of Washington. That's where you got your PhD. It's studied yep. under Walter Parker, who's very well esteemed in the social studies world. What, what are some of those things that you really learned about in that program about, about good social studies or government instruction? Yeah, so I was um, lucky enough to have been a part of a large project. It's an interdisciplinary project. So not only did I have the opportunity to work with Walter, who, like you said, is just a um, really well-respected source of amazingness in the social studies field. So I just had a lot of his expertise. But at the same time, I got to work with scholars who worked on engagement and motivation and identity and so I got to learn a lot of things about how to really capture students' attention and the kinds of important things that go into instructional strategies. But of course, you know, from Walter and others, I learned about, you know, curriculum planning and how much that really is a part of making teaching valuable, right? So I think a lot of teachers think about classroom management as trying to manage kids. And I really learned through graduate school that classroom management is a lot about managing the curriculum and the instruction. Because if students are engaged in doing powerful and relevant things, then you tend to see a lot less of those kinds of management issues. And so I really learned how engagement and curriculum planning all plays together in making a classroom a really great 
place for students. I remember my education courses when I was in the ed program, uh, I was talking to the dean once and we're talking about classroom management and we talked, well, I was saying how there's really no, nothing for classroom management. All we're told is that if we have a good lesson, you know, we shouldn't need to classroom manage. Although sometimes I feel like you actually do need to have some strategies in order to manage, you know, a, a big classroom. But my education program, they were very much like, no, no, just create good activities. Yeah, no, I think in my mind, it's not like an either or sort of right, thing. Right. I think it's sort of an and thing, right? Like in order to utilize the strategies that you help kids get through things, you have to really plan your lessons. So if you don't have a well-planned lesson or a well-planned curriculum, no amount of raise your hands to talk or flashing on and off the lights is going to help capture students' attention and vice versa. Like you can't do really engaging things and have no rules in the class, right? And so I think those two things really go to hand in hand to help, you know, create a good positive learning experience for students in the classroom. And that's where, Michael, I give the uh, the professors who've probably been out of the classroom for who knows how long, <laughs> like the side eye, I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't need any strategy. I mean, you know, because I do agree. I mean, I think a great lesson is the best classroom management. But I also knew in my teaching that having a plan and strategies for how to enact classroom activities helped a lot, too. Like they were they went together well and the combined. They really helped my class run smoothly. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that as a researcher, it was very beneficial to have, you know, been a classroom teacher. I mean, right. And it's, it hasn't been that long for me being in the classroom. It's only been about four or five years. And so I definitely still like I remember really terrible professional developments. Right. So when I work with teachers now, I really try to make sure that what we do is relevant to teachers. And we thank you for that. <laughs> try. <laughs> and we didn't even say where you're at. So you're you're at Florida State, correct? And yep. how long have you been there? What's the work you're doing there? Yeah, so I've been at Florida State University now for two years, and I am a social science educator. Um, and so what that means is I help prepare students who want to teach social studies in middle school or high school in the future. And so that's sort of my teaching load is working in the teacher preparation program. And then my research focuses on civic education in middle and high schools. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So you said earlier that now, knowing what you know now, you would go back and, and redo your government class. How? Absolutely. How would you do it? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you should ask that because one of the things that that large project that I worked on at the University of Washington was actually revamping the high school curriculum. What? Uh, government curriculum, I should say. And so I have a very, very good idea of how I would redo my government course now if I were to go back into the classroom. Um, and essentially that project, we worked on creating a project-based learning version of a high school government course. And you basically teach the entire government course through projects, which are political simulations. So kids are placed into roles. They're always in a role. They're seldom not in a role. So they're always in a role. They're always in a situation. They're always simulating some sort of political process. And it's a lot of fun for the teachers and for the students. It's a little crazy, but, you know, having been on the designing team and also researching the project, I would totally do it. I would totally teach this in my own classroom. Do you mind if we share the the project in the show notes later on? No, not at all. Yeah, there's a website actually called knowledgeinaction.org that 
tells you a little bit about the project, has a bunch of resources um, and ways to kind of contact other team members on the on the resource. Do you mind giving us an example of, of one of the one of the activities? Yeah, sure. So to a little bit background on the project, it was actually created to be on the uh, advanced placement platform. So I actually taught uh, regular government classes, but also I taught AP government classes as well. And so part of the fun of that was we had to put in all of the content material that would show up on the test, the AP test at the end of the year. So we couldn't just sort of ignore content in lieu of fun. So we had to kind of work in combination to get the content information in and do it in an engaging way. Content and fun together. Yeah. And one of the things that we did, um, well, we did multiple things, but essentially we teach all of the content that the AP test requires through five projects or five political simulations. So rather than doing a bunch of lectures and a list of things to memorize, kids actually learn all of this in materials from doing five political simulations. One of them is kind of what Dan was talking about. It's a legislative simulation. But instead of just doing a bill becomes a law, the kids do a little bit more in-depth committee work. And they also take on roles as members of Congress, and they have to research those roles. Um, so they're not just coming up with random things by themselves. They have to research the roles and who their constituents are and what constituents would actually want to be bills. Another one that teachers really like is an election simulation, where we basically have students be in roles as candidates, the presidential candidates. They are... Uh, party bosses, meaning the political party leaders, interest group members, media campaign folks. Um, and essentially, they run an entire presidential campaign from announcing that they would run for office all the way through general election. That is awesome. I know Jeremy Stoddard, who is a former guest of the podcast, has done some cool simulation stuff related to this. And I've always, I like the idea of having students take on the role of like a some kind of lobbyist or some kind of you know, analysts or someone work because that's where you really see a lot of the work in campaigns that often is right. Like, people don't, people don't understand because um, yeah. we see the visible, like running, you know, being a candidate, but then actually understanding the inner working of politics, right. the backroom deals, the special interests, you know, I want to be a shadow billionaire. <laughs> I'll take the billionaire part. So <laughs> in the elections campaign thing, actually one of the, because this is on the AP platform, one of the things that they have to know is campaign finance. So like campaign finance rules. So typically teachers would cover this with a few lectures, maybe one lecture and here are the rules and know them, memorize them. But in this simulation, we actually incorporated those rules into their polling. So depending on how they perform sort of on various tasks on the previous day, their polling numbers would go up or down. And then that impacted how much money they get. Right. Based on the media information that comes out in from the media groups and the interest groups. And if they get endorsements, then they get certain amounts of campaign funding, which then allows them to run several ads, et cetera, et cetera. So they sort of run all of this stuff. That's kind of like simulation I did in my class where I actually made them give me their money throughout the (laughs) class as a way to, to make sure they could think about understanding the value of spending your campaign money wisely. There you go. Maybe um, that's not a simulation. You just pocket the money at the end. Oh, yeah. That was – I spent two years in jail for that. Um, <laughs> this is not so, true. Listeners, he's not – this is not true. So, Jane, first we'd also – we haven't said this yet, but we would like to congratulate you on your publication in theory and research in social education. 
you recently published an article titled Adolescents Developing Civic Identities, Sociocultural Perspectives on Simulations and Role Play in a Civic Classroom. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that study? Yeah, sure. And thanks for the congratulations. It's, it was a lot of fun to write, actually, and a lot of fun to work with those students in that study. Um, so this and, is and fun uh, to have published, right? That's yeah, fun to have published have. always. <laughs> so the data for this study came out of the subset of this project that I was just talking about with the AP government course. In that study, I looked at how this role-playing and these political simulations impacted how students think about their own civic identities through these classes. Because oftentimes, you know, kids go through a class and then they sort of, you know, they have seven classes in a day and they run from class to class to class. And then what they do in one class, they sort of leave and then kind of go on to another class. So I sort of wanted to see being in these roles and doing all these simulations, does it have sort of a lasting impact on how they think about themselves? So I took the lens of looking at civic identity, knowing that, you know, one class for a year is probably not going to shape their entire identities of themselves, but at least maybe it might influence how they think about certain practices in politics. And so that's what this paper is really about. That's really interesting. And um, it is a little disappointing, though, because I thought all my students' lives were transformed by my class, single class. But so can you tell us a little bit more about the the role of simulations and role play? And we've talked about that a little bit, but what you learned in the lesson, I think a lot of educators are interested in simulations and role play. And they're, they're difficult topics, too, especially in social studies, where they can be done very poorly if you're doing them on the wrong topics. Right, definitely. Yeah, and I think, so this definitely comes from me as a civics researcher. So I'm personally interested in civic education and how students develop their civic identities and sort of civic empowerment and things like that. And so I looked specifically at the role that these political simulations could play in helping students begin to develop that sense of wanting to participate or maybe not wanting to participate, at least getting them a sense of what it could be like to do some of these political things in the future. And so what I found was that sort of twofold. On the one hand, the roles really helped. I think these are teenagers, and I don't know if everybody remembers the angst that go with being in high school and having your peers and friends dissect your every word or every look. And what I found in this study was that the role play really helped students let down their guard. So I call that sort of this portal into plurality because they say to me things like, man, you know, because everybody's in a role, I sort of can play whatever I want. People don't expect that you're saying things because that's what you believe in. They expect that, oh, you have to play this role. So you're saying these things. And so it kind of allows them to try on different political identities and different ways of thinking about things that they might not otherwise do so because of peer pressure and other things. So that's sort of one thing about role play. And the other one is the political simulations give students sort of a taste of what it's like to do some of these political things. Like Dan said earlier, if you were to sort of shadow a lobbyist or pretend to be a lobbyist, you might get a better sense of the inner workings of the political realm rather than just saying, well, this is the president, this is what he does, and this is what you know, cabinet members do or whatever. And so I think the political simulations help students really get a sense. And in the article, I call this kind of their practice linked identities, meaning their identities linked to particular practices. And Nasir and Han are the ones that coined this phrase of practice linked identities. They talked about 
the age old example is if you're a basketball player, you have a particular identity when you're on the basketball court, right? Like there's a, a way that you carry yourself that you that you are as an athlete that's associated with being a basketball player. My now, nickname you, was yeah. my nickname was Thunder Dan. <laughs> and it, you might not be that way elsewhere, but it's definitely an identity you have linked to that particular practice. And so in this way, the political simulations give kids an opportunity to have that link, right? To develop some sort of identity around an activity. So this activity could be working as an interest group. This activity could be trying to pass a law. This identity could be linked to when they do a SCOTUS or the Supreme Court of the United States moot court, and they pretend to be lawyers or justices. And so the kind of identities that get linked to the practices that they play in the political simulations. You know, I didn't do simulations anywhere to the degree that you did in this study, but my favorite simulation I did in government class was that I had a Supreme Court simulation where they had to take on the roles. And it was really fun. We did an establishment cause case that I made up. And the scenario was, it's really hard to make up Supreme Court cases, by the way, because there's just been yes. such detailed cases. And so and there's a lot of levels you need to work up there, right? You have to get through the uh, the fake like state state Supreme Court. Yeah. And so no, this one is all the way to the Supreme Court. And so I we but we worked, we had the background where we talked about what happened in the as it made its way up. But so in this case, what it was, was if I can remember this, all, all the details, right? And I had my students reading like law cases about this to like prepare for it um, on each side of the case. And so the case was a student was going to a Catholic church. And uh, instead of just going and getting the wine a single time, like this, this like 13 year old kid, like went through the line like 12 times uh, <laughs> without anyone noticing and got drunk off of it. And so then the city reacted by trying to pass a law not allowing the Catholic Church to use wine. And so then that became uh, an estab- uh, uh, sorry, a free exercise case. I said establishment earlier. It's a free exercise case. And so they had to read all of the previous cases on that and, and kind of make arguments about intention and stuff. And to me, there was kind of a clear precedent for probably how that case would be ruled because the city law was, a, was targeting specifically that church's practice, religious practice. But it was the students had such fun with it. And they really got into those roles and in different ways than I think the other. And I was always so impressed by the people who decided to take the lawyer roles because they'd be really knowledgeable to kind of give their talk before the Supreme Court that you give. Um, Supreme Court cases are very different than, you know, law yeah. and order. But they to be able to talk and answer questions along with the Supreme Court was showed a lot of intelligence. And so I was always really impressed with them and their ability to do it. What did you what have you found with students ability to do it? Do they? Do they always enjoy it? Do you see the content knowledge, direct connection to content knowledge gains out of it? What? How did it connect to the overall curriculum and goals? So this part of it wasn't in this particular paper, but it's definitely a part of the larger study since we were looking at like content outcomes and like academic performance outcomes. And I think one of the design principles of these political simulations or projects that we design has to do with engagement first, meaning we put kids into roles in these simulations so that they would have a reason to need to know stuff. So sort of like what Dan was talking about, you know, kids sort of rise to the challenge. If you give them authentic audiences or saying, hey, you really want to make sure you know your stuff when you go up against the other side, or when you go up to be heard by the justices, they tend to rise to the occasion and like really make things work. 
um, the teachers we work with also had other adults. So sometimes, for example, in the paper that I published, in one example, the teacher actually had a state Supreme Court justice come in to be their sort of one of their justices. And the kids sort of like freaked out that, oh, my God, I have to actually do this in front of a person who actually listens to these sorts of cases. And they and I mean, it's not perfect because they are 17. But at the same time, they sort of rise to that challenge. And that is part of that practice linked identity where they can really perform when they need to. Now, it may not mean that they want to become lawyers in the future, but at the very least, they now know sort of what it might be like to do something like this. So you have your Supreme Court case. What are some of the other roles that, because obviously you only have a few lawyers, but you might have a class of like 20 students. What are they doing? Or are they just learning like a character? And have you updated that with having the person who plays the president wake up in the morning and tweet about whatever? <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes in simulations, we suspend reality for a moment, Dan. So there's that. So no, that's a great question about the different roles. We actually have the students do multiple cases at a time. So they're actually in teams. So they're in lawyer teams. So at any given moment, there might be two or three different moot court cases that kids are working on. So there's usually the way that we worked it out with teachers. You have one group of students who are the justices. So by definition, in a Supreme Court, that's nine kids. And then you have the other students breaking off into lawyer teams for three different cases. And so the, the justices really sort of have to become aware of all of the cases and the cases are linked in such a way where the kids are having to know the other cases as well. Okay. Um, so you, cause you want to avoid the classic jigsaw problem of like the expert group really knows a lot about their stuff, but not a lot about the other stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That part is sort of the curriculum planning where we had to be really strategic about which cases we chose so that there's either there's precedents that all of them need to know precedent cases um, and so that the precedence works in the cases that they're working on or something like that so that it's related. So it helps them to meet with other lawyer teams to figure out what they're going to do. Sometimes I do a simulation. It's um, it, we put Napoleon on trial for, for breaking the, the rights of man. And I find that the lawyers know a lot because they're dealing with all the different characters. They're, they're looking at the big picture. But a lot of times the character, because they, you know, they have to be Napoleon or be this other person. They only know about their particular person and they don't get that deeper or that content knowledge in the other parts. And so that's, um, it's interesting that you have multiple cases because um, that's one of the flaws I find with, with that. Yeah, I think part of it also with moot court, because appellate courts don't have a jury or witnesses or other characters like that, it actually simplifies things a bit because kids are basically in one of two roles. You're either a lawyer or you're a justice. And so and we really kind of hone in on the fact that what they're working on is constitutional reasoning. Uh, and looking at various arguments and precedents and those kinds of things. And so in terms of the kinds of things, skill sets and knowledge and content that kids are gaining, it's really all the same across the board. It's sort of just playing out on different platforms. Cool. And that's why I really liked to use the uh, free exercise case because the cases were so interesting that everyone kind of wanted to learn about them. If you've never studied free exercise, do a Supreme Court simulation on that. I'll give you all my stuff. But Reynolds versus U.S. is a polygamy case from the late 1800s, and the students find it fascinating. Wisconsin versus Yoder, 
So Wisconsin versus Yoder was about the Amish and, and whether they were required to go to school and whether that, you know, and then the last, the, the third one we always looked at was the church of Lukumi. I always forget how to say it. The church of Lukumi Babaluya Aie versus city of Hialeah, which was a Santa Ria case. And so the cases were so interesting around it. The kids all got into it, but they did all have to understand it to be able to make arguments from whether they were one of the nine Supreme court justices or whether they're one of the team of lawyers who were giving remarks and writing a brief before the Supreme court. And so I think finding interesting content is helpful too. Yeah. And I think part of, again, being on the AP platform was sort of interesting. It's challenging, but at the same time in the, in the case of the SCOTA simulation, it really worked to our favor because there's so many landmark Supreme Court cases that kids need to know for the test. And they are all categorized, right? So there are freedom of speech cases, establishment clause cases, there are incorporation cases that really all play well together. Because again, for cases to get to the Supreme Court, it usually has to do with particular issues. Do you ever like screw screw around a little bit and be like, oh, here's an amendment to the Constitution? <laughs> like at the last minute, they're like, oh my goodness, now your reasoning's changed. Yeah, no, we never did that. But that is sort of interesting that you bring that up because we teachers, we, we got the teachers. We, by the way, I should mention, we co-designed the simulations with the teachers. So it's not like we were just sitting in a room somewhere in the ivory tower cranking these things out. We actually worked with teachers to design them to be very practical and useful in the classroom. But um, one of the things that we we pulled stunts like that in the election simulation. So there were lots of scandals that got dropped oh, and October surprise. kids come in thinking they got everything laid out. No, just kidding. Your secretary of, you know, your particular campaign was just found in a sex scandal with a minor, you know, in the state. Like, what are you going to do now? And so there are all sorts of that kind of stuff that happens that kids have to sort of react and figure out what to do. So, Jane, what specific uh, – Michael, did you have something? You kind of Oh, like no, no. Like, I was just trying to figure out when you said minor. Are we talking about someone like a, who goes underground to get coal? Uh, <laughs> They're like underage. Okay. But another one – I should give another example and that's probably better. But like one case was things like this happen where – there, I did an observation one time where the kids were supposed to do their debates, like the presidential debates. They're supposed to do these um, with each other. And the media, the kids who play the media teams were asking questions and doing all this stuff. Well, one kid had a dentist appointment, right? Like didn't, forgot this. And this was the pres kid who plays the presidential candidate. And so he was like just not showing up to school. And the campaign manager is freaking out because they're supposed to do this bay. It's like a big part of their grade and big part of the project. Like, what do I do? It's like texting this kid all the way through. And then she like cleverly comes up with this bit of like, oh, our Canada was unexpectedly stopped by an accident in the row where she had to help, you know, the injured passengers of this horrific car accident to the hospital and was unable to make this debate today. And so they so did wrong. this whole spinoff of how she was doing humanitarian aid of, you know, all these things rather than going to this debate. I would have gone with your candidate as hiking the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone that doesn't remember that one, that was Mark Sanford's excuse while he was yeah. off having an affair. Is that he was 2000, the that's 2009? It's like 2009, I think. Yeah, I think I was teaching during that. So we, my students and I, we would always 
Yeah. Like, when someone was gone, we're like, maybe they're hiking the Appalachian Trail. Oh, <laughs> and teachers really love, I mean, again, you can, we use all the time current events, right, that happen yeah. in, in, the, in the tabloids, in the headlines. And then it just throws the kids for a loop, but they really love it because they, they've worked really hard to have all these plans. But then you throw them something and it sort of messes with their reasoning. But what it does also, it, what you pointed to earlier, Michael, is actually it causes them to rethink their reasoning and rationale about doing things. So that's another way that we really think about understanding of this information is whether or not you can sort of think on your feet and come up with new solutions. And in learning sciences, that's been shown in research that that's how you sort of measure when you know something really well, where you can sort of, you know, think about things in a different way, given in a new scenario, you can come up with new solutions. Cool. And I, that's one of the reasons I really love teaching government is because it was so easy to work in current events. You know, we, one to two days a week, we would start, our bell ringer would be watching clips from things happening politically. And it just connected all over to our curriculum. So, Jane, uh, what's, what's some advice, specific advice you might have for educators trying to do more role play or simulation um, in their classes? Yeah, so one of the things that's really, really important is it's important to make sure that the roles are really relevant and authentic. Right. So sometimes as teachers, we get lazy and thinking, okay, like, what can I pull in today? And this kid, oh, you're going to just now be another person in the jury or something. But I think kids see through that pretty quick, quick. Um, And if they don't have a relevant role to play in the simulation, then they sort of kind of fall to the background. And that's where you see kids slipping through the cracks. So what we try to do really was to make sure if you're going to assign kids to roles, that the roles are authentic and they're important and they're relevant to the case or the particular political simulation that you're doing. And also, I think the simulations themselves need to be not just relevant, but really impactful in students learning of the content as well. So we know the simulations can be fun, but I think it's really important that these projects really drive the learning. And I think that's what we've been able to achieve here. So not only are kids just having fun, which is always important in a classroom, but that they're actually having fun and engaging in things that are important. I think the article that just got published really talks about this, where the simulations are sort of so authentic and so good that kids are not just having fun, but learning really important lessons through them as well. And maybe this is the point, public service announcement point of the podcast, where we say, if you're doing simulations and social studies, make sure they no one is simulating living through a tragedy. That's <laughs> right. it. I just feel like we have to say that because it comes up like every year or so. I see someone on the news who tried to do some kind of simulation with the Holocaust or oh, slavery God. or somebody else who is in some kind of um, you know, the face to human rights abuse or something. Just don't do it. Don't try to do simulations with those activities. Do what Jane's doing. That's my advice. Do what Jane's doing. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, we have lots of, for this particular project, there is some resources out there. We have published a couple of other um, articles in one in Democracy and Education. That's actually a an open source journal. So you can get this for free. That talks a lot more about the curriculum. We have some publications in social education as well that talks about the project. I know some social studies teachers have um, have subscriptions to that particular journal. Um, but there is also a website to the project that we mentioned earlier called knowledgeinaction.org that, where you can get a lot more information on how to do these kinds of simulations. 
Well, Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this was really educational. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This was fun. Where can where else can listeners find besides the wide website you mentioned? Um, we will link in our show notes the articles. Is there your specific work or any of your uh, other? Do you have any websites or anything else online where people can find you? Um, I just have the Florida State University website where, and we'll definitely put that in there where people can find me and contact me. But I will also put in a couple of resources where they can find good projects. And um, we recently did an EdWeek webinar that sort of talked teachers through how to put together projects like these where kids are put into roles. So I'll put that in there as well. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. We definitely will continue that discussion online. And uh, Hopefully everyone can tweet us when they do some cool role play or simulations in their class and they can tell us how it went. If it went good, give us some feedback. If it went poorly, then uh, you don't have to let us know about it. But you can still <laughs> let us know because failing is okay. I feel like this is kind of a big thing when you try something. You are going to fail. Things are not going to go right. Talk to us about that too. Oh, okay. So don't go my shame route. <laughs> no, no. We should be fine with failure. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative, giving something a whirl in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, just subscribe to us. Subscribe to us on all of your devices. Have your friends and family subscribe to us. We do have a special friends and family plan that we are happy to announce today. It's free to have them subscribe. <laughs> if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, and that helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Wisconsin versus Yoder is a, um, uh, oh gosh, sorry, what's the group? Um, the Jedi's. No, not the Jedi's. Oh, I, Yoda, I just, like, not went, Yoda. <laughs> <laughs>